1: This is Dan Cotter and this is episode one of the podium and panel podcast with my co-host Pat Eckler. Pat, before you tell us a little bit about the first case, I wanted to let the listeners who might not be appellate lawyers or aware know a little about the five appellate districts that exist in Illinois. The first district is Cook County. Given its size, it has its own appellate district. The first district has six divisions. All others have one division. There are almost as many appellate court justices in the 1st District, 24, as there are in the rest of the state combined. That comports with the volume of cases, as Cook County has about as many filings per year as the other 101 counties combined. The 2nd District is Collar Counties, and extends to the northwest border of Illinois. It meets in Elgin. The 3rd District is Central Illinois for Chicagoans. It includes Will County, from east border to west border, and it meets in Ottawa. The fourth district is lower central Illinois, from east to west, and it meets in Springfield. And finally, the fifth district is southern Illinois to the southernmost tip. It's a long state and in a broad state. It meets in Mount Vernon, Illinois. You will hear us say during these podcasts, this is a first district case or whatever district. Each district has its own character that if you follow closely, you will be able to discern. The Illinois Appellate Court is the intermediate court of review in Illinois and sits below the Illinois Supreme Court. Every final judgment is entitled to review by the Illinois Appellate Court. Review by the Illinois Supreme Court is discretionary with the court is done pursuant to a petition for leave to appeal, which is the Illinois equivalent of a petition for writ of certiorari to the United States Supreme Court. The opinions of the Illinois Appellate Court and Supreme Court are available online as are the oral arguments. Indeed, you can live stream arguments before the Illinois Supreme Court. With that background information, Pat, the first case for tonight is Kramer versus Ruiz, a recent oral argument. Tell us a little bit about Kramer, Pat.
0: Thank you, Dan. Um, Before we talk about Kramer, we're going to talk about three cases tonight. And uh, three uh, cases all have in common, I think it was an accident, uh, though a happy accident, that they all have the same standard of review that the court is going to be looking or did look at in the two cases that uh, were uh, two opinions that were issued. Um, the first case we're going to talk about, Kramer versus Ruiz, is a was an oral argument where the standard of review is, as with all these cases, is abuse of discretion. And abuse of discretion is the among the most deferential standards that an appellate court gives to the decision of a trial court, because it means that in order to find there was an abuse of discretion, no reasonable court would have held as the trial court did in that particular case. That is an distinction to a de novo review, which is a situation where the court applies as a matter of law and can substitute its judgment for that of the uh, trial court or um, manifest weight of the evidence, which is another common standard, many times uh, it's the situation where the parties agree as to what the standard of review is. But sometimes one of the big issues in the case is what is the standard of review, and parties argue about it. Argue about that a lot on appeal, in cases where there's a dispute about what the standard of review is, and there could be cases where you have a mixed question uh, standard of review. But it's a very, very important issue in cases where there's a dispute. Oftentimes, the standard of review can be dispositive, and in the cases we're talking about tonight, these are situations where there's a great deal of deference given to the Uh, trial court based upon what they found. That doesn't mean that the appellate court agreed or would have reached the same decision. It just meant that no reasonable court would have reached the same decision that the trial court did in the event that they decide to reverse. So keep that in mind as we talk about these cases, um, what the standard of review is. So with that, let's get into Kramer versus Ruiz. Kramer versus Ruiz was a case that was uh, recently argued before the 5th District Appellate Court. And it's a case arising out of Rule 103B. 103B is a Supreme Court rule that deals with the speed with which a plaintiff has to serve a defendant. The service of process is amongst the most basic due process elements that uh, any party is entitled to. Due process at its most fundamental level is notice and an opportunity to be heard. Service is the notice part. Uh, that you know that you've been served, uh, and in all law school, all law uh, lawyers will remember Ponoyer versus Neff, um, and uh, and probably, shrunk, uh, probably uh, um, sh- uh, shirk in response uh, to that. But uh, uh, even though one day we will probably discuss this, that there's a move now to argue that Panoya versus Neff was rightly decided, but that's right. the, that's a question for a different day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, this was a very tragic situation. The plaintiff's deceased was killed in a trucking accident in uh, December of 2016. And in uh, in December or strike that January of 2017, counsel retained by the defendants, or it wasn't the defendant yet, by the alleged at-fault tortfeasor's insurer, engaged counsel, and procured an affidavit from him as to the extent of his affidavit to provide to the family of the deceased person. And they did that. About a year and a half went by. And then in June of 2018, the lawyer that was representing the family of the deceased died. No suit had been filed. Four days before the statute ran, in December of 2018, suit was filed. The lawyer that was handling the matter seems to have been unfamiliar with the electronic uh, filing process. And though she requested that the uh, summons be issued, she never actually got it and gave it to a sheriff or a process server to go serve it. And as a consequence, the sh- summons wasn't actually issued and given to someone to go serve until August of 2019, about nine, eight or nine months after the suit had been filed. And he was served, the defendant was served at the address that they knew where he was at 11 days after the summons was actually placed for service. In the meantime, the uh, lawyer um, became ill. She had had a a significant um, medical condition. And for several months, she was uh, not able to work, and they, that was given as an excuse as to why there was this delay. In addition to her not knowing the um, this electronic uh, electronic uh, service process, and so the defendant moved to dismiss on the basis of one hundred three B. Now one hundred three B is a K, is a is a factor test that the trial court is supposed to analyze and. Both parties relied on a case called Verplo versus Gagliano. Now, there's a mouthful from the third district in 2009. That's 396 ILAP, third, 1041. And that's a case where the court held that it's prima facie evidence of a delay in service when a plaintiff waits five months to serve the defendant. Now, the reason why they have this rule is to prevent the plaintiff from essentially extending the statute of limitations by filing their lawsuit right before the statute of limitations and then waiting to serve the defendant. And so that all of the reasons why we have statutes of limitations, we may talk about that on another show, uh, are defeated when the plaintiff waits all that time. Uh, And the factors the court is supposed to look at um, are among them the length of time used to obtain service of process, which in this case were eight or nine months, the activities of the plaintiff, which weren't very much until they were, and then they found him. The plaintiff's knowledge of the defendant's location, which they seem to have had almost for two years, over two years, the ease of where the defendant's whereabouts could have been ascertained, they were easily ascertained, actual knowledge of the defendant of the pendency of the action as a result of of ineffective service. So action, that means not that there might be a claim that there might be a suit filed, but that there was actually a suit filed and there was no evidence based upon what I was able to discern from the oral argument that he was aware there actually had been a suit filed. And then special circumstances that might uh, affect the plaintiff's efforts, which in this case would have been the death of the prior lawyer, and then the uh, health condition of the subsequent lawyer, and then actual service on the defendant, which was which was at, which did occur. Uh, and the trial court uh, granted the motion to dismiss. It was a dismissal with prejudice because service was achieved after the statute of limitations had run. If the service had been achieved prior to, or in situations where service is achieved prior to the statute of limitations running, then the dismissal was without prejudice, which seems kind of pointless why you would move in such a such a situation, but that's the rule. Um, most of these cases, and nearly everyone I've ever read, deals with a situation wa- where the service is achieved after the statute runs, because let's get some bang for your buck if you're going to move on this kind of, this kind of a theory. Um, and they got the bang for their buck, and the case was dismissed. With prejudice, which means that the plaintiff in this tragic situation is not going to get anything—at uh, least not from the at-fault tortfeasor or his insurer. So there were a couple interesting issues that came up in this oral argument. The first is that sh- this—I referenced this affidavit that was procured, uh, and what—and there was something made of the uh, the fact that the insurer was involved in getting this affidavit. Now. In some states, not Illinois, but in some states, you can serve a defendant uh, in an automobile case through their insurer. New Jersey is a case where you can do that, maybe other states. Uh, Illinois certainly isn't that. Um, I'm not sure what that has to do with anything. Many times courts confuse the insurer with the defendant or their insured, um, but they're two different things. An, an insurer is just an indemnitor. It's not a party to the lawsuit. In states like Wisconsin that are in Louisiana that are direct action states. You actually name the insurer as a defendant, but that's, again, not Illinois. Um, so I'm not sure what that had to do with anything. But if any court is going to find in Illinois that it's important that the insurer was involved, it's the 5th District. It would sure. not be a matter of any controversy to say that the appellate, that the 5th District is the most favorable uh, appellate court in Illinois to, ins- to insureds and to plaintiffs. And the least favorable to defendants and insurers. In fact, one might go so far as to say uh, that it's amongst the least favorable courts in the country to insurers. Um, so, if if any court's going to say that, is going to find that this is somehow relevant to the analysis, it will be the Fifth District. It'll be very interesting to see what happens here, um, uh, how they how they deal with this and how it comes out. Now it's important as I said at the beginning that the standard review is abusive discretion. Is it really Dan the case that a that a tr- that no reasonable court would have agreed with the finding of the trial court in this case to dismiss this case with prejudice despite the really draconian outcome? What do you think?
1: I, I think in this case it's a high hurdle uh, to to overcome an abusive discretion standard just because you went through the factors the only factor in the in the plaintiff's benefit is the lawyer issues, but again, you know they still sat on it. They had the the date or the address, and so they could have easily served at some point well before the statute of limitations. So I think it's a hard hurdle in this case, but it's the fifth fifth district. So as you note, if any district could find for uh, the plaintiff in this case, it would be it'd be here.
0: I, I I agree. I, I think it's also important to note that the health condition of the of the lawyer didn't arise until April or May of 2019. Uh, so there was a period of time between December of 2018 and, and when she became ill and then was out of commission for a couple months. So that delay alone under the Verplo case may be enough to have to, to support a finding in favor of the defendant uh, in the in this particular situation. Um, it will be interesting to see how this comes out because I will say the appellate court was very sympathetic to the plight of both the family of the deceased, as well as to the situation of the lawyer. Uh, because if this case is dismissed, they won't be without a cause of action. They'll just have a different cause of action. Uh, and so, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see, uh, how this, how this turns out. Um, it's it's an important doctrine to keep in mind, the 103B, and we'll talk about other defenses amongst the panoply that uh, defendants have, um, but uh, we should have that decision, uh, who knows when we get the decision. Um, but I, I think generally that based upon the oral argument, which is always a dicey proposition, I think we're going to see a reversal, uh, even though it wouldn't be my decision, Uh I I, I think, but I I wouldn't be surprised if there's a reversal, and if there's not, it will be at least be a dissent, I expect, based upon the oral argument.
1: what do you think? I I think you may be right, and and those are probably our first predictions, surely to go wrong. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with a second case.
0: We're back here on the podium and panel podcast, and Dan is going to talk about the facts of the next case, which is a decision in uh, Hartley versus North American Polymer Company. Take it away, Dan.
1: Thanks, Pat. This case was a decision issued in early December uh, by the 1st District 4th Division. As we mentioned, uh, the 1st District is the only uh, appellate court in Illinois with more than one division. And this is another sad case. Uh, The plaintiff uh, filed a, a wrongful death lawsuit. Uh, alleging products liability and negligence after her son, Kevin Hartley, had died from inhaling fumes from a product manufactured by the defendant and sold by the another defendant. Uh, the defendants uh, filed third-party complaints for contribution against uh, Tony Hartley and his business, Hartley's Painting, which was related to uh, the deceased. Uh, it was his uncle. And, and so uh, plaintiff and Hartley entered into a settlement agreement. They settled any claims between them for $50,000. They sought a finding that the settlement uh, was made in good faith, which is a requirement of these settlements. And uh, the court, the trial court, it was interesting because originally they found that that $50,000 settlement, there was a million dollars of coverage potentially available, was not made in good faith. Uh, Then they came back, reconsidered based on some filings and motions of the uh, defendant, Hartley. And lo and behold, they come back and find that it was uh, dealt with in good faith. Uh, The case involves uh, what's known as the uh, Joint Contribution Act that Pat's going to talk about a little more. And this is an interesting case because there's questions about whether it should have been in Illinois to begin with and other things that Pat, when he listened to the oral arguments, uh, got some of that flavor. So, Pat, you want to talk a little bit about the Contribution Act and then what the oral arguments kind of suggest it.
0: Thank you, Dan. Uh, the Illinois Joint Tortfeasor Contribution Act—it's a mouthful. Essentially, it's how Illinois apportions fault amongst people that caused a particular a particular injury. If the injury was wrongfully caused by more than one uh, at fault party, then how do you apportion that fault amongst the defendants, and perhaps and perhaps also against the defendant if the if the plaintiff had a role. In, uh, in causing their own injury uh, uh, under our um that's a different uh, under their, our comparative fault uh, uh, scheme which is a modified scheme and we'll talk about it on another day that's too much for today uh, but what happened in this case was is the plaintiff sued as Dan said the product manufacturer and the distributor of the product but they didn't sue the employer nor did they file a workers compensation claim now typically if you file a workers compensation claim, you can't sue the employer directly and they get brought in as a third party defendant. Well in this case they didn't do that and they still didn't sue them in tort either. And so the defend the defendants sued this party. Now in order to get out of the case, the plaint- the third party defendant can show that they're not liable to the plaintiff in tort. they can show that in a number of ways. One of them is to show, and we're, we're going to eventually talk about a case. Actually, it's going to be in a column I'm writing in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin talking about a situation where they found that uh, a defendant was not liable to the plaintiff in tort, or you could settle with them, and then you can get out if the trial court finds that the settlement was in, quote, good faith. What does good faith mean? What well, means that there wasn't any collusion, wrongdoing, or fraud between the settling parties? And that's what the courts have said. It is the statute itself is silent as to what good faith is. And that's and as I have written several times, and I'm going to write and it's going to get published again shortly in the Wobbleton. We need some help there uh, we because do. we've got we, we've we've got some problems as to what is and what is not good faith. Hell, in this case, the court itself, the trial court. Originally said there was, and then said there wasn't. So even even Judge Durkin couldn't figure out originally uh, uh, whether there was good faith or not. And as pointed out in the oral argument by counsel for the defendant, nothing changed. And in fact, one of the factors actually went in favor of finding that it was in bad faith when she found the second when she found on reconsideration that it was a good faith. So uh, you figure it out. Another strange thing about this case that I was wondering throughout is, and this may speak to why they didn't file suit against the uh, defendant or against the employer. First of all, whether he was an employer or not, there's arguments about he wasn't an employer, didn't know workers comp. The kid was paid on a 1099. Does he, you know, and, and then there were issues regarding a finding by OSHA that found 12 major violations and one minor violation under OSHA for not providing proper equipment for this stripping. He was stripping a bathroom and this, he gave him an inadequate mask. And the question was, and and so one of the products at issue was this mask that the the young man was using that was insufficient and ultimately led to his, his demise.
1: And it's Um, a whole body of law, of course, about the independent contractor and employee. And again, not for this segment, but a future date, we'll, we'll probably talk about cases that discover that.
0: But but all of this this alleged wrongdoing occurred in Tennessee,
1: right? So
0: I still don't understand how it got in state court in Illinois, um, <laughs> I, I, and it may be why they didn't is because if they had, they would have there could have been a removal to federal court or something. I I, I just don't know what it's it's a bit bizarre. But that's a, that's that's put that to the side. Yeah. But the oral argument was going very well for the um, plaintiff until it wasn't. Uh, And and one of the justices just couldn't hold their cards anymore and said, let me get this straight. You settled for $50,000 on a dead 21-year-old on disputed liability and a million-dollar policy. (laughs) Yeah, I've got some questions here as to whether that's in good. Oh, and oh, by the way, you have this family relationship. Now, the family (laughs) relationship is a bit... Is a bit strained because the mother of the deceased, who is the representative, was divorced from the principal of the third-party defendant's brother. <laughs> right. Now the brother, yeah, you figure this. If you need a family. You need a you need a chart to figure this family tree out. The brother who is the uh, the brother still works for the uncle for the uncle of the deceased. Takers under the under the because the the young man wasn't married, it doesn't seem, and didn't have any children. Takers would be family relations of the of the principal of the third party defendant. So the courts said this close familial relationship really this doesn't look good. You got to basically you got to pay more money. But why do the defendants care? And the reason why the defendants care is because under two eleven seventeen. Of the code of civil procedure and under the Supreme Court's decision in a case called Ready versus United Rentals, the settling defendant doesn't appear on the verdict form. And as a consequence, they don't all they can get under the Contribution Act is a setoff for this fifty thousand dollars even though this defendant who had 13 OSHA violations may be the one who ultimately caused this young man's death. He doesn't show up on the verdict form and they only get is $50,000 in, um, in, uh, a set off, which is taken at the end and the jury. Never hears about it. So a 21 year old dead male in cook County is worth at least in the seven figures and perhaps more. Um, he wasn't married, didn't have children, so that reduces it somewhat, but it's at least a seven-figure case. $50,000 ain't cutting it relative to the liability that this t- employer potentially had. So that's why these defendants care. That's why they really cared and they want more money out of that, uh, out of that defendant in order to get an appropriate uh, set-off because the courts have held that the Joint Tort Fees or Contribution Act has two purposes. Number one, to encourage settlement and number two, to equitably apportion fault. And the court said, and the courts have approved settlements for well less than fifty thousand dollars on damages, at least as amount of this amount. So not just the amount, which I think is a mistake, but that's the law. Um, so this is a very interesting case, uh, published opinion, uh, which we'll talk about at the end. What because uh, the laws the law has changed now on that topic, um, published opinion, and and a, and a very interesting case where some insight was really gained if you listen to the oral argument as to what the court was thinking. Uh, Going into the opinion, uh, as terms of what they really thought was important uh, about this familiar relationship, Uh, Dan, did I did I cover all the marks in terms of the contribution act?
1: You did, and you know this is this is a good example of limits to abusive discretion, right? This is a court that actually found on that low standard uh, that the trial court got this wrong, and I think as you talked about, I think that this case, uh, probably was decided right based on, uh, ba- just based on the facts and based on the trial court struggling with, uh, the same factors and coming out differently based on the same facts that, uh, should have, uh, should have rejected the settlement. So.
0: Well, I, I, I think you mean high standard. I,
1: oh, yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I think I don't, mean... <laughs> uh, the, the other thing is, is that, uh, And a question I've raised, and in in my writings on this topic, is: Should the trial court have the opportunity to look at what the value of the case would be and the potential liability to determine whether there's good faith? Currently, there's law that suggests that the trial court and the appellate court can't look at that. If you're going to equitably apportion fault, you got to at least take a stab at what the value might be, especially if you're going to look at what the available insurance uh, coverage is, and if you're going to look at um, whether that a proportion of that is sufficient to uh satisfy it. I think you need to look at what actually is the poten- what the plaintiff's gonna ask for. Cause in this case, the plaintiff's gonna ask for seven figures if this case goes to trial. And they're gonna and, and the defendants are going to have an opportunity to point the finger at that employer if they're if they're there. But if they're not, they're not gonna be on the verdict form at all. Um and there's gonna be no opportunity for the jury to apportion fault to them. And the most of the point the defendants are going to have is the set off the jury's never going to hear about.
1: I think that's a good approach that you suggest that uh, they should be able to have some kind of analysis because otherwise, how do you ever really determine a good faith settlement right? Uh, without uh, assessing somewhat what the case is worth?
0: It's an imprecise science. Uh, It's not science, it's art. Uh, But there needs to be some consideration of it. Um, I think we've we've beat that horse.
1: I think so. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back with the third segment
0: hey podium and podcast listeners if you want to get in touch with the show you can drop us a line at podium and gmail.com please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview you can also follow dan and i on linkedin as well as the podium and panel podcast page on linkedin we look forward to hearing from you
1: Welcome back, and we're now going to talk about the third case Evans versus Patel and Waukegan Illinois Hospital Company, LLC. This is a case that involved uh, the plaintiff as special administrator of the estate of the pla- of decedent Quavia Evans. She brought a medical malpractice action against the defendants and the Circuit Court of Cook County against the defendants. The defendants filed for a motion seeking to transfer the action. To the Circuit Court of Lake County, under the doctrine of forum non conveniens, and Pat will talk about that in a second. In this case, uh, the doctor, the medical places, even the plaintiff, uh, all were located in Lake County, but she chose Cook County, and this is a decision about abuse of discretion on uh, forum non conveniens. Uh, what's interesting about this case is again, none, none of the activities took place in Lake County. For those that are not uh, locals to Chicago and the surrounding counties. There, as Justice Gordon and his special co- concurrence noted, the two uh, courthouses are about 36 miles apart from each other. It's a fifty minute ride on a good day. It could be much longer than that on a on a different day. Uh, but he did in fact find that uh, the trial court he uh, alleged and the uh, majority opinion in this case uh, determined uh, really weren't working on an abusive discretion standard, but he did concur that, the jurisdiction was appropriate with that pat I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about this case and the outcome and get your thoughts
0: so this thank you Dan and this is one of those uh, this is another one of those doctrines uh, forum non conveniens so among the defendants we talked about at the beginning 103b is a defense the defense defendant has it has the, the right to be served timely it has a right to be served, to be sued in a place where there's venue that is where one of the defendants actually is located or does business um, and we'll talk about venue, and that's. And then we have this other defense, which is forum non which is codified in Illinois under Supreme Court Rule One Eighty Seven. A bit of a digression. Uh, there was an attempt uh, last uh, last spring now to get rid of intrastate forum non conveniens, that is transfers within the state, and only allow interstate forum non conveniens, that is cases transferred on convenience grounds outside of Illinois. Uh, Because of the pandemic, that didn't go very far. We'll see what happens this spring. I expect to, uh, my first column with the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin was on this topic March 12th of last year. I expect to be back at it in Springfield uh, on this uh, when uh, this legislative session uh, picks up. But it's a long-held tradition uh, that defendants have a right to be sued in a place that's actually has a connection to and convenient for the parties to try the case. And there are a number of factors. You'll also see that the the courts have an interest in making sure that cases aren't being litigated in places that have no connection to the case. So the private interest factors are convenience of the parties, relative ease of access to sources of testimonial, documentary, and real, real evidence, the availability of compulsory process to of unwilling witnesses, the cost to obtain attendance of willing witnesses, the possibility of viewing the premises. It's a medical practice case, so in this case, that really wouldn't be an issue. No one's going to look at the emergency room right. um, and all other practical considerations. And then the public interest factors, the administrative difficulties caused when litigation is handled in congested venues like Cook County, uh, the unfairness of imposing jury duty upon residents of a community with no connection. Well, none of the, as Dan pointed out, none of the alleged negligence occurred here. So had this case stay in Cook County? Because they affirmed the finding? We'll get to that. And the interest of having local controversies decided locally. Now, as Dan mentioned, Lake and Cook County are adjoining. And adjoining county, forum non-convenience cases are difficult uh, for defendants. Much easier if you're trying to transfer further away. But there's a big difference between the jury pool and the outcome you might expect between Cook County and Lake County. Not as much as it might used to have been. But certainly, if you have your druthers, you may want to be in in Lake County if you're a defendant over, over Cook County. Um, so what was the connection to Cook County? It turns out the defendant, Dr. Patel lives in Cook County. His children go to school in Cook County. He has an unrelated, uh, ketamine practice in Cook County. Right. So it's sometimes very hard to argue that it's inconvenient to litigate in Cook County if you live in the County. Now that said, there was a recent case decided from the fifth district of all places called Brant versus Shecker. That's uh, twenty twenty ILAP Fifth One Nine Zero One Three Seven, where the court held that just because the doctor lived in St. Clair County didn't mean that there was it was convenient to litigate there. The treatment had been received in a uh, in Marion County and also in St. Louis, uh, and so in in Missouri, and they were asking for the case to be transferred in Marion to Marion where the alleged malpractice had occurred, and simply because the doctor lived in St. Clair and there was no other connection, that wasn't enough. Also, as Dan mentioned, this was an abuse of discretion case. And the trial court judge in this particular case, in, in the Evans case, Judge Flanagan held that, no, it wasn't inconvenient to litigate in Cook County. Now, another thing that's important about form nonconvenience is that the plaintiff gets deference typically as to their selection of form. But that deference is reduced in two circumstances. If the plaintiff doesn't live in the county that she's chosen, which was the case here, And the alleged negligence or other conduct didn't occur in the county, which occurred here. So the the level of deference was reduced. Now, defendants like me have often argued that they get no deference. That's not the law. The law is they get less deference. Uh, And there can be a presumption, uh, you could argue, of forum shopping. uh, If you choose a, a jurisdiction where you didn't live and didn't suffer injury, which was the case here. The court didn't go with that. The other thing that's important is that the, in order to overcome this deference, even if there is this lower deference, as was the case here, the factors have to strongly favor transfer to the to the other county. And the court held they don't strongly favor. So the, defense, the plaintiffs really got the deck stacked here on appeal. They've got a strong presumption in favor of their choice and an abuse of discretion standard. Um, a a, a a mighty hill to climb, uh, for the for the defendant, uh, in this case. Now, what was interesting, um, uh, in the oral argument was one of the justices was very interested in. Well, you guys aren't trying, Kate You're you're doing everything remote. Who cares where these all these ninety witnesses? The defendant's laid out affidavits of ninety witnesses, all of whom are in Cook County, are in Lake County. That's going to be really inconvenient for them to come. Why, why do you, Why you're gonna do this all remote? And, and I think the justice, and this didn't show up in the opinion. This is why, one of the reasons why I bring this up. And it's also important that the justice was very focused on, we guess you could try this case remotely. Well, first of all, that hasn't happening in Cook County, at least I have learned this morning that there is a Lake County remote jury trial scheduled for February. Uh, so they're going to try them. They're going to try them, uh, at least one. I know they're doing remote jury selection and the pilot program was developed up there in Lake County. Um, and judge, uh, judge Mitchell, uh, spoke to the IDC on that process. And it's, uh, it's, it's been approved by the Supreme court and it's, it's, but not remote jury trial. They're going to do a remote jury trial in February, at least one up there. So where depositions occur, isn't a factor because under rule 206 of the Illinois Supreme court rules, defendants or strike that. Uh, witnesses are deposed in the county where they live or where they transact business. So these there's there's inconvenience of deposition testimony isn't isn't a factor because you just you go to the witness, uh, the witness doesn't come to you. Now a trial that's a different story. Uh, you got to get the witnesses to show up or to show up as the, your court pointed out perhaps remotely, especially with with medical witnesses. They often tra- testify remotely. Uh, doctors under the under the rules there's a presumption that they're going to testify via evidence deposition. Um, so they're not going to show up at trial almost extremely rarely will they show up uh, uh, live uh, for their testimony. But that was an interesting thing to see the court in, you know, thinking about, hold it, this is all going to be remote. Who cares how many people are going to have to travel? I think she was wrong in in terms of how she uh, was thinking about it with regards to depositions. But we'll see as the world goes on that perhaps we will have more remote trials and it won't matter. That will be something to take to take a look at. Um, this this case is a um, so, so it's not a rejection of Shecker, but it is a case that is important because it shows uh, that um, the forum nonconvenience doctrine is still very much uh, alive and well. And that uh, if you're in the county, you've got a, you're going to you may have a tough row to hoe. Um, for uh, for the defendant in getting a case moved, especially if you were unsuccessful uh, in in the trial court, there were a number of opinions last year that were favorable to defendants from the Fifth District, right? Uh, on form non-comedians, but later in the year things seemed to trend more favorably back towards uh, towards plaintiffs, and so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, and we'll see if we still even have an interstate form non-comedians doctrine come come the spring.
1: That's right. And with that, Pat, what you had mentioned in one of the earlier uh, cases, uh, Rule Twenty Three, and the changes. In uh, the few few minutes we have left, maybe you want to talk about uh, what's changed about published opinions and why that's a good thing for practitioners and for justice in general. So, in the mid
0: '90s, the Illinois Supreme Court uh, decided that it needed to save some money on uh, publishing opinions, and because that's when all the opinions were published in books. So they allowed opinions to be decided to be either published or unpublished. and it was up to the uh, appellate court justices to decide which ones were published or not. And until two thousand and six, they gave a quota of the number of published opinions each was allowed. And then that was repealed in two thousand and six. In two thousand and eight or ten, I, I think I've got that right. They went to an all electronic uh, system, so we've stopped publishing for at least a decade, if not more, here in Illinois, physically, we've published you know so, there is no – no, the reason for Rule 23 kind of went away, yet we still had these published and unpublished cases. And, and, and to give you an idea of the dimension of, of the issue is about two-thirds to three-quarters of the cases were decided as unpublished, which means they couldn't be cited by the parties. In other words, law is being made. And cases are being decided and they could only be used by those parties in the case that they were decided. They couldn't be used by anybody else. And one of the most frustrating things for a practitioner was to find the perfect case with all the right facts and it came out the right way and then you couldn't use it. Because if you did, you got the slap down.
1: So you didn't do it. And it was kind of an oxymoron because they were unpublished, but they're again because of electronic, they're out there and searchable and findable. So they're published electronically, but you can't do a damn thing with them, as you said. Yeah,
0: they're out there in the wild. You just can't. You just can't use them. Too bad. Um, So the the appellate court or strike that the Supreme Court came with a um kind of a halfway solution. Uh, Those of us I have written and argued for an abolition of of Rule 23 in in its entirety. Uh, But what became the issue was whether that would be prospective or retrospective. That is that formerly unpublished opinions would either become published or able to be cited. And that was, from my perspective, for a variety of reasons, a very, very bad idea. There was a reason why those cases were unpublished. And I have reason to believe that they did not go through the same rigor uh, that published opinions had gone through. Now, there was a process to get opinions published and certainly have filed those and I've won those. So what the appellate court, the Supreme Court did is effective January 1 is opinions issued after January 1 of 2021 are able to be cited as persuasive authority only. Um, And so that uh, we haven't had any of those opinions issued yet, but that'll happen shortly. But you can't go and cite formally unpublished opinions as 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 uh, authority. But going forward, you can. We'll see the appellate court. Justices did not seem very happy with this change. The trial judges and the uh, practitioners were of a mixed review. So they managed to make no one happy entirely, which uh, is maybe a good rule. Uh, So we'll see. We also might see more rule 23B opinions. That is opinions that are issued just on orders without explanation as the appellate court may say, you know what, we're not writing that. We're just going to give, you know, affirmed, reversed. That's what we're doing. They may do that. We'll we'll, we'll see what happens if we get more Rule 23B opinions.
1: Like the, com- the commercial calendar, uh, commercial arbitration cases where arbitrators like myself just issue a number and, and that's it. And you have no idea why or any insights.
0: Let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's hope that at least they're giving opinions. Uh, but uh, I know there's some, uh, my impression is there are some appellate court justices that are not happy with this change. Uh, but, uh, at least for the bar, I think it's, it's a move in the right direction to at least be able to cite ones going forward on a, uh, a on a persuasive basis. So, Agreed. um, it's, it's a big change in Illinois. It is. I think that's all we have for today. It is.
1: I'm Dan Cotter. on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.